The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. So have you ever felt marginalized? Have you ever felt like uh, you're misunderstood or that you're being excluded or that you're just not quite measuring up to what the norm is or what the expectations are? There's lots of reasons we can be excluded. We can be excluded for gender. We can be excluded for our ethnicity, we can be excluded for our work status, blue collar, white, we can be excluded for our politics, we can be excluded for whether we like comic books or not, whether we've got tattoos or not, whether we've got piercings or not, whether we're a Patriots fan or not, and we can be excluded for a lot of things. Um, you know, we see this a lot going on right now um, in terms of being marginalized in how we're excluded um, in kind of a, a, a weird way with uh, New Hampshire right now, we're Clearly, like on the map in terms of like it's important what the politics are going on in New Hampshire. Like, you know, uh, New Hampshire is not like the most um, important state in the union uh, by population count, but um, it takes on a disproportionate amount of importance right now with uh, you know all the primaries are happening right here. I mean, we can see all the candidates in Manchester right now, and. Um, so, I mean, usually where Manchester, or New Hampshire is marginalized in terms of, like, the political conversation in the country, um, we're actually marginalizing the most important states, like, you know, New York or California, um, and we're kind of taking center stage. Um, so there's a lot of ways that we can be marginalized, um, and, in, and I just say that say, as uh, we can experience that even as a state and how we understand things. Um, and even, like, here in Manchester, we're talking about the refugee situation. It's really cool that we're going to be uh, able to care for the refugees in our city and what God's doing to help us serve them. And, uh, but they're largely a marginalized community within our city, uh, which is why we're eager to serve them. Um, but, you know, being marginalized can be a very painful experience. It can be, you know, things that you can't control about yourself are the reasons that you're being excluded from, um, from the cool kid table. You know, I mean, there's there's a lot of reasons why people can be excluded, but it's a painful experience. And uh, when we feel slighted and when we feel marginalized, it exposes what's uh, what our hearts want, and what we value, and why we value them, and what's most important to us. And that's kind of what, what's going on at the beginning of this book in Colossians. I don't know if that would what what you would come uh, what would come to your mind when you read the book, but Colossae was um, it was a city that lived in the shadow of the bigger city, Laodicea, just, you know, a days or two walk away. Um, it lived in the shadow of this major city. Colossae was not a cultural center of the area uh, at that time. It's kind of a bit of a depressed situation. Um, it wasn't where people went to get educated. It wasn't where people went to get their medical training or lawyer training. Um, it wasn't it kind of lived in the shadow of this other major city, and these people um, were experiencing kind of this marginalization in some ways, and because they were being marginalized, they were faced with this, this question. Uh, what was their identity going to be? Who were, who were they? Um, and the church especially was faced with this question, who were they, and what did they believe, and why, uh, why did they stick with Jesus? Um, because they lived in a culture that was very eclectic. I mean, they weren't all just down the line Jews, and they weren't all just down the line, you know, Greek pagans. Um, it was an intermix of a lot of different people, 
and it really sounds a lot like Manchester. Like Manchester is, uh, we live, uh, we certainly are a big city in terms of New England standards, but we still kind of live in the shadow of Boston. Um, uh, there's certainly some issues going on in the city right now. We've got some major, you know, the uh, narcotic situation going on, and you know, we're talking about the refugee situation. There's some major things going on, and uh, Manchester's trying to recover from kind of this economic swamp that's been in for the last 30 years or so. Um, so there's a lot that actually kind of maps onto our experience of what Manchester's like, and the very city that this book was written to, Book of Colossians. Um, and so they're, they're faced with this question. Uh, who are they? You know, because when you're marginalized as a city, or your identity is marginalized, uh, you begin to look for novelty or things that would try to boost your appearance and boost your identity. Um, and that's what was going on in, in the church at Colossians. They had people who were coming in and were teaching uh, things to try to uh, take advantage of these fears and the marginalization that they felt. Um, to try to boost them with other things in addition to Jesus. And so what we're going to be looking at is, especially in this passage, but in the book as a whole, Paul's uh, call to them, his commendation to them, that Jesus is enough. Uh, Jesus is sufficient. Jesus is enough for everything that they need, and that even if they feel marginalized, God has not forgotten them, and that Jesus is everything that God wants for them. Um, and the, the main point of what's going on in this passage, especially in verses 1 through 8, um, is Paul calling them to enjoy the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. That even if they feel marginalized, even if they feel uh, tempted to look into novelties or new ways of looking at spiritual things or trying to understand the world, uh, that Jesus is enough. And so, not only is Jesus enough, but the grace and the, the good news of this passage for us is that we're called to enjoy what God has given us in Jesus. Um, and so what we're going to look at in this passage is that God has given us three very substantial and very good reasons why Jesus is enough. Um, we're going to ask the question, you know, why is Jesus enough? If it, the main point is that uh, we're called to enjoy the sufficiency of Christ um, in the gospel, then what are the reasons? Why? You know, so I, I just invite you to look along with me and uh, to look at this passage together. And so we're going to start, actually, we're going to skip the first two verses. We're going to come back to them in, at the end. Um, but what we're going to see, like you guys see in that on the handout, uh, an empowering hope. God gives us an empowering hope, a real truth, and a powerful gospel. These are the three things that we're going to see um, that give us reasons for why Jesus is sufficient. Um, so the first point uh, God gives us an empowering hope, verses 3 through 5, just the beginning of 5. Uh, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. I think it's interesting that Paul starts out this whole letter, um, you know, the, the church had this situation going on where they had lots of false teachers and people talking you know, lots of different ways of understanding God. And um, he starts out this book thanking God for them. I mean, there's all these issues that they're facing. There's major uh, identity issues. But he talks out, starts out thanking God for what God is doing in the church. He starts out thanking God for the grace in their lives. Um, and he thanks God for this specifically for their faith and love for each other 
but then hope as well. And so it's just kind of like this famous triad that's in the Christian tradition of faith, hope, and love. And he calls that right here. He says, I'm so grateful for your faith. I'm so grateful for your love. And I'm so grateful for the hope that you have. But he doesn't just kind of say it in like a general way. He doesn't just say, like, oh, I'm just grateful for your faith, hope, and love. Next point. He actually gives a little bit more meat to the whole, the whole point. Because he says that the faith and love that they have are actually rooted in the hope that they have. Um, the hope is the totality of blessing, the full blessing that awaits Christians in heaven. And he roots their faith and love that he's thanking God for in the hope that they have in the life to come. And so the, the idea is that you know, the heaven is where their hope is resting. They're looking forward to all the rewards they're going to receive in heaven uh, for believing in Christ. And, and their faith that they live out now and the love that they exhibit toward each other um, are, sorry, <laughs> Bill distracted me. Sorry about that. <laughs> I didn't know the flesh was on. <laughs> I just feel so, I feel so important. Violent. <laughs> um, so, but their faith and love were rooted in the, uh, the life to come. It changed, it changed their perspective of how they live today in light of the hope that they had in the future. And so, what they had going on, what Paul is commending them for, is this future hope um, that changes how they live today. It, it gives them perspective for understanding the difficulties and trials of life that they're facing, but it also roots their perspective that the difficulties they're facing as a church um, and what God's going to do in the future. And, um, you know, this idea that, like, our, the hope of things to come and the hope of the things that will change in the future, uh, kind of changing how I live today, uh, that could kind of sound a bit esoteric or a bit kind of strange, but we do it all the time. Uh, I do this, especially lately, I will go out and work around and I forget to take my lunch with me, um, and I, I do it like all the time, and then Michelle kind of has to like drive to wherever I'm at to like drop off lunch, <laughs> and so, uh, so what will happen is like I'll start getting hungry and it's like, oh well the hope of having another meal. Like, I know that's going to be coming. Like, it, it makes the, the hunger endurable, you know, and I don't loathe the people who are eating around me. You know, so it, cha- it changes, like, this, this dynamic of being hungry, um, knowing that there's going to be this meal coming from Michelle, who's so gracious to bring it to me wherever I'm at most times. Um, but there's more substantial examples of this. Like, there's a, one of our sister churches down in Charlotte, um, the, you know, we just had the, this, this horrific shooting this summer um, where the guy killed the, you know, these, these nine uh, black brothers and sisters right after their prayer meeting. Um, he actually was uh, in that city or around that area and had been building relationships um, in term, uh, with other pastors in the city. And uh, part of that was just trying to bring some reconciliation to these two communities, the white and black community that just had such a long history uh, of just being segregated, to say the least. Um, and so after the shooting, it was amazing to see how God used him and the other pastors uh, to bring this powerful reconciliation where they are, they were holding prayer meetings together and even having the white pastors you know, wash the, the feet of the black pastors in repentance for the racism that had been going on in the city. And the reason I bring that story up is to say that the hope, there was a hope that of the life to come that fueled their actions. 
it wasn't just because God tells us to love our neighbors um, and that God despises racism, but the reality is that God is creating a new people that will live together in perfect harmony in heaven. And if that hope of being a new people together in heaven has real teeth and grit to it, we need to start acting like that now. And so their hope of that life to come when we live in perfect unity together uh, resulted in faith toward each other in the gospel, toward these pastors toward each other in the gospel, and then their love toward each other to repent and seek reconciliation and unity together um, as local churches. So this faith that Paul is commending and this love that he's commending are rooted in the life to come and the hope of what, of what is coming. Um, and so, this hope is just such, a, it's such a powerful dynamic of the Christian life where we don't give in to the despair that evil is going to win in the end. The gospel really is that God wins in Jesus. And that's already secured for us. So the trials that we're facing or whatever the struggles we're going to experience as a church plant or whatever struggles you're going through right now, there is a real hope because Jesus won over death. He won over our sin. He won over these dynamics that seem to drag us into despair or the difficulties and trials of, of everyday life. He, he won. And so that hope changes how we live out our faith, how we live and love towards each other. You know, that hope empowers our faith and love today with the reality of that day, of the reality of the day when Jesus returns. Um, and so I think that there's a, this actually has some very substantial applications for our lives today. Um, one is, I think that if we are seeing each other live in faith and in love toward each other for the hope that we're going to receive in heaven, I think like Paul, we should be commending and encouraging each other when we see that in each other's lives. Like, when we see somebody act in a way that exhibits faith and trust in Jesus for the life to come, we should be encouraging them. I mean, we often don't. I mean, we often maybe we think in our head like, "Oh, I wish I was like that," or you know, maybe a little bit more cynically, like, "Oh, is that true? Are they really? Are they just kind of like happy, happy type people?" But uh, I think Paul's example here is that we should be encouraging each other as we see each other acting in genuine sacrificial faith. So I mean, there's a real sense as a church plant, God is so pleased with your sacrifice of faith to invest in this church plan to reach Manchester. I mean, God's pleased with that because you're giving up comforts of previous churches or comforts of other churches that are good in the city, but you're giving up those experiences for the investment in the life to come so that you can see more people come to know Jesus and become disciples of Jesus. So I think that we should be considering that. Uh, and that's, I think, the, the risks of the church plan um, really exhibit already for us as a church this faith and love together for the hope to come. And uh, I think also as well, I mean, if you're not a Christian or if you know folks that aren't Christians, um, the real question then comes in here, where is your hope? Where is the hope of the life to come and your framework of how you understand the world around you? I mean, there is no hope. I mean, even if politicians use hope as a major dynamic of their campaigns, all politicians, all pastors, everybody is going to let you down. In the end, it's only going to be Jesus who grounds your hope. Um, 
And if there is no hope uh, for life to come, then it really begins to crush in and bring despair into your life. What, where are you going to find hope for tomorrow? But Jesus offers hope, um, not because of how good or deserving we are, but because of who He is. Um, and so that's what we're going to be looking at next. Is So how do we know these things are true? How do we know that this hope to come that Paul is so encouraging about, how do we know that that's true? How do we know that Jesus is going to change things? If God wants us to have hope and that Jesus is sufficient for us, how do we know that's true? We need real reasons. And uh, so God gives us not only uh, an empowering hope that changes us today in light of that day, but he also gives us real truth. Um, so let's look at verses 5 through 7, uh, the second part of verse 5 through 7. Of this you have heard before, and the word of truth, the gospel, which comes to you as indeed, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from a path for our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister on your behalf and has made known to us your love and the spirit. It's interesting how Paul keeps emphasizing like this whole the gospel is something that they have heard. They have heard it and they've heard it and they've heard it. They have gotten the gospel from the beginning. And the question that they're wrestling with is do we get the whole gospel? Do we get the whole deal? And Paul is responding, yes, the gospel is all that you need. The gospel of who Jesus is is sufficient. And he's saying here, so he says, you know, of which you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. You've heard it then. And then he goes on to say, um, you heard it and understood since that day when you first heard the gospel. The gospel continues to have relevance there in verse 6. Just as you heard it then. And you also learned it from Epaphras. So there's like these three times that he's saying in this section, look, you've, you've heard the gospel. And you've had a good pastor who's taught you the gospel. So, the question then comes up, what exactly, what exactly is the gospel? So Paul's kind of assuming some knowledge here. He's going to go on and describe it, actually, in a couple of chapters. But, at this point, he's assuming the gospel has been taught to them. Um, but it's consistent through Scripture. The reality is that the gospel starts with God creating the world good and in, um, and in fellowship with Him. Adam and Eve... Um, in good relationship with Him, in loving and perfect relationship with Him, um, they chose to reject God. And in do so doing, they twisted and broke their own hearts and they broke their relationship with God. And, and sin um, contained, uh, contaminated everything in their lives. And everything began to be broken after that. Creation fell into this broken disarray where we have, you know, obviously people die and we have mosquitoes. Um, and... I won't go commenting on other animals that exist in the world on account of sin, but because I, I want to maintain friends. But um, but the reality is that sin so broke us when we sinned in Adam and Eve that we can no longer trust ourselves. We can no longer trust that. Um, we can no longer trust who we are to know God. We can no longer know God just by talking to Him. We've broken that relationship, and in fact. We want to be God. We don't just want God to kind of be on the side. 
Because anything that doesn't acknowledge God as good and sovereign and the true king is trying to become God. So we're trying to push God to the side. We're trying to reject God uh, by nature. Um, and the Bible is filled with all these stories, I mean, from the beginning, showing that we cannot trust ourselves. And that's a part of the major part of the gospel, is that we can't trust ourselves. All through the scriptures, all through the Bible, there are so many stories of how people trust themselves and even have what would appear to be good intentions and trust themselves. But God does not let them be his means of saving people. Because from the beginning, God could have just let people, let Adam and Eve just kind of, well, you know, all right, you rejected me. Um, you're going to be forever rejected from me. But God's continued pursuing us through the Bible, um, through history. And uh, even with good intentions, God does not allow people to be his, his means of saving us. So you can see this in the life of David. So like King David, um, basically there have been a whole lot of uh, political and uh, national turmoil leading up to him becoming the king. He becomes king, sets everything right, makes the world new, and, uh, or makes the Israel set in place. Everything's all good. He even gets a good house. Like, you know, things are good enough where he can set up his own house, gets a big mansion. And at the time... The, the place of God's worship was in uh, what was called a tabernacle, so it was a big tent outside the city. Um, tent's a bit of an understatement, but you know, it was a big tent, effectively. And uh, so David's kind of basically sitting in his window in his house and looking out and seeing God's place of worship in this tent, and it's kind of ragged, not impressive. And David says, you know what, God, you've built me a house, I'm going to build you a house. That seems like a good, good motive, you know, like in that seems to be giving glory to God because uh, that shows how great and glorious God is, but God rejects David and says, no, uh, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to make you a house. Because, you know, here's David in this, like, man, you know, mansion or whatever. And um, David, uh, so what God says to David is, you know, I'm going to make you a house, and this house is going to last forever, and I'm going to give you a son who rules the entire world forever and ever in perfect peace and harmony. So, so God, God does not allow us to trust ourselves. So even, there's a moment there where David was trying to trust in himself and try to provide a gift back to God, try to give God, give, thing, give back to God. But God wouldn't let David do that. Because the gospel became that, that son of David came in Jesus and took on flesh. The son of God and the son of David became Jesus Christ. He took on flesh and lived among us and lived a perfect life like Adam and Eve couldn't do, like we can't do. And he lived a life amongst us so that he could show us what God was like, so that we could know who God was in Jesus. But he didn't just live a perfect life so that we could kind of see this great moral example of what a person should be like and just kind of think, oh man, that's great. He lived a perfect life um, out of obedience to God on our behalf. And Jesus, in taking on his perfect life, walked in our shoes and lived our lives so that in his life, um, he experienced all the suffering of, of the, the world. He experienced all the brokenness that Adam brought into the world by his disobedience. And he experienced all the trials that we experienced. And he walked up to the cross. And the amazing thing of the gospel is that he didn't die just to kind of show us that God loves people. He actually died 
in our place. He died for all the ways that we have offended God. He died for all the ways that we have rejected God. He did it without any help from anybody. Jesus didn't kind of get hoodwinked into going up on the cross. He went up on the cross because that's where he wanted to go. To die on our behalf. To die so that we would get to know God. So that we could be reconciled to God and put back into God's family. Um, so Jesus died in our place, but then he gives us this righteousness. And that's his righteousness, his good life, his goodness. He gives to us so that we can then become a part of God's family and live with God forever. But this is all because of who God is and what he's done in the gospel, not because we're contributing to it, not because we've actually, the only part that we've contributed to God's story is all the bad news, you know? Like, that's, that's the part that we've contributed. But this gospel that Paul keeps pounding back to them is, you know, God, God is the one that's doing this. God is the one who sent Jesus. God, God's idea was the gospel. The gospel was completely God's idea from the beginning. And Jesus was being in, in the cross and in his life, Jesus was marginalized. Jesus was rejected so that because of who he is, we could be accepted into the arms of God, into, the relation, into a relationship with God. So that the reality here is that, that God notices us. Even if we don't live in like a sexy town or live in like the best place, or have the best credentials, or have the right family, or the right sort of, uh, you know, education background, or whatever, God notices us. God takes note of who we are. So God notices, God loves Manchester. God loves us who live here in Manchester. Because God, God sent Jesus to be marginalized for the people like us who are marginalized, um, so that we could become children of God. And so the question then Paul's asking him is like, look, why are you fooling around with all these things that are trying to add to God? And we're going to get into that. Like what, what, were all, what was all this false teaching? What was being taught? But Paul's asking like, listen, like God has noticed you. God loves you. And he cares about you. And this gospel has brought you into God's family and renewed you in Jesus and he's making the argument that this gospel is sufficient for you in everything. So why are you going to fool around with these things that are like Jesus plus something? You know, Jesus plus the worship of angels. Or Jesus plus, you know, certain religious regulations. No, Jesus is enough for your relationship to be restored with God, to be brought into his family. So the real truth... So this real truth that we're looking at is not stagnant. Uh, so that's the way we can hear this, though, is that, like, well, that's all things that happened 2,000 years ago, or whatever. Um, and does it still have relevance for us today? Yeah, it does. But the truth isn't just relegated to being back then. The truth continues to have an effect today. And so that's what we're going to look at right now. The third point, uh, a powerful gospel. God gives us a powerful gospel. So I want to read this whole passage, and I, and I just, again, because I want us to kind of pick up on a few things here. So Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. So that whole, that whole redemptive history, that whole history and the big fat part of the Bible here, 
That's all the will of God leading up to this moment where Jesus has come and died for our sins and been raised to new life. And now Paul is an apostle that God sent to remind us. So, that, so that's all that's kind of going on today. Paul, an apostle by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And I don't want us to miss that phrase. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. This all starts with God the Father pursuing us. And this is God pursuing us because of who He is. Not because we deserve it or because we've done anything to get God's attention. Because God loves to show people like us mercy. So this is grace to you. He's, send, he's sending grace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God the Father of Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, and let's just note this phrase, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard and understood the grace of God in truth. You see, the gospel starts with God, it starts with God pursuing us with grace and mercy. And the gospel uh, takes on a life of its own. It, the gospel has its own power. See, I, this phrase that he uses, the gospel bearing fruit and increasing, that's actually a phrase, he's pulling that from Genesis. He's pulling that from the creation account, where God creates uh, the world, and he creates plants and animals, and they're said to be to bear fruit and increase. So he's pulling that phrase from the Old Testament to make the point that in the gospel, God is creating a whole new creation. He's starting afresh. He's not rejecting the old creation, but he's renewing through the gospel. The gospel is now taking on this life because it is the glory of Jesus Christ conquering over Satan's sin and death. And it's producing, it's got this own, its own power, its own gracious power that produces fruit and increases in our lives. The gospel doesn't depend on us. It is God's news, but it has a power. It's powerful in itself. So that the, the gospel comes in and it gives us new hearts to be able to feel and love. It gives us new eyes to be able to see God and love what He's doing. It gives us new minds to think God's thoughts after Him and to love the, the truths of Scripture so that we begin to see the world as God's... <coughs> so that the world is now being changed from being broken, twisted, people left to themselves would live in a, a loneliness of hell forever. God's making sons and daughters out of enemies. He's renewing the world. In Romans, Paul talks about... Uh, the creation groans. We're about to go into fall and winter. I don't know about you, but that's creation groaning. The creation will be renewed someday, but the beginning of all of that is happening through the gospel's change in our hearts and lives so that we become more like Jesus. We, become the, we, we love Him and we become disciples of His and we help more people become disciples of Jesus. This gospel changes us. It has its own power. But not only does it have its own power, but it delights to use us as a means of its power in other people's lives. And that's, that's what I'm so excited about with this church point. Is I don't know, I mean, you guys would know this, but 
And this church plan is not driven by uh, my charismatic personality um, and my, my good looks. <laughs> this church plan is the fruit of the gospel increasing through the world because the gospel is powerful enough to bring people like us to know Jesus and then bring us together to know Jesus together and to bring more people together to know Jesus with us together. But the gospel does that. We don't bring anything to the table. We get to enjoy what God's doing through the gospel. And we get the privilege of being used by God in the gospel as he's building this church, as he's building King's Cross Church. So I don't know about you, but I think I think one application of that is that it, it lightens the load. It lightens the load of church planting. I mean, this it would be kind of daunting. Like, I mean, you, you know, setting up this morning or this afternoon, it seems kind of like you know trying to get things together. We got a pretty stripped down setup, you know, like you know. So, but for the days ahead, the reality is that when things we get stressed out about the church plant and we get stressed out about you know this or that, this miscommunicated or whatever. We have to come back to this truth that the gospel is what's producing this. The gospel is what's driving and producing King's Cross Church. And the gospel gives us enough grace to be able to have patience with each other, you know? <laughs> so, but I think that not only does the gospel produce these things, but the gospel demands it. The gospel will produce new disciples. You drop a missionary into any foreign country or any Manchester, New Hampshire, and God will use that missionary with the gospel to produce new disciples of Jesus. The gospel has that power, not the person. The gospel generates new disciples, and the gospel demands that we're on mission with God. And that just means loving our neighbors, teaching them about Jesus, loving each other, loving Jesus together. That's all it means to be on mission. I mean, it's intentional love. I mean, that's another way to say it. But the gospel demands it. The gospel demands that we be on mission with God because God's going to produce new disciples. The gospel is going to bear fruit and increase through the world. I think the second application of this is that um, I think it really shows that, that God's inviting. God takes us wherever we're at. You know, maybe one way to talk about coming to our gatherings or coming to services is come as you are because the gospel comes and engages us wherever we're at. The gospel... Um, doesn't really care. God doesn't really care in the sense of, like, we don't have to work ourselves up and, like, get the right Sunday vest on or get our lives in line or get in the right recovery program or get our language in check. God will engage us wherever we're at. The, the God of the gospel, his, his power is the one that changes us. We don't change ourselves to be able to come to God. We don't change ourselves to get ourselves into a right relationship with God. God comes to you to give you the power and ability to understand it, completely of his own power. And he does that through the gospel. And so this gospel, I mean, as, uh, as Paul keeps emphasizing this, this life in Christ, I mean, this really does, it, it lightens the load, and I think it gives us hope for the church plant, and gives us hope for reaching Manchester, and I think it gives us hope for living lives that uh, aren't crippled by this guilty sense that I'm not living up to God's expectations. Because God's showing that he loves us in Jesus. And I think the, the, the ultimate payoff of this passage in our lives is that first phrase where Paul says in verse 3, we always thank God. I think that this should lead us to be grateful. Grateful for what God's done for us in the gospel. Grateful for who God is. God could reject us and leave us. He would never need us for all eternity. 
But God's chosen to bring us into fellowship and relationship with Him. I mean, He's done that through the gospel, and it's just, and He's done that in Jesus. Which is why, to kind of bring this back to the sufficiency, Jesus is sufficient. It's that we have the we have God of the universe pursuing us in the gospel, pursuing us in Christ. What else? What else do we need apart from Jesus? Jesus is sufficient. He's sufficient for all our needs. And so the so to put those things together, he's sufficient and gratitude, that just means enjoying who Jesus is in the gospel. That's what God's calling us to, to enjoy Jesus in the gospel. So whatever the difficulties at home are, uh, turmoil you're facing, kids aren't doing what they're supposed to do, parents aren't doing what they're supposed to do, work difficulties, you know, whatever those look like for you, uh, God is sufficient in the gospel. Jesus is sufficient in giving us life so that we can know Him. So we're going to look through, we're going to be preaching through Colossians, and we're going to see how Jesus is sufficient, so that's what we're calling this series, Alive in Christ, because it's all about Jesus, and it's all about being alive in Him. Um, I'm not like a rocket scientist, so I didn't come up with a greater series title. I just Alive in Christ seems good to me. But seeing how Jesus is sufficient changes everything about our lives. So we're going to see how God how the sufficiency of Jesus changes how we pray. It changes how we know God and the meaning of the world. It changes how we work for peace with our neighborhood, with our neighbors. It changes how we minister. Jesus being sufficient changes how we relate as a, to each other. We minister to each other. We minister to the city. Jesus being sufficient changes how we minister to each other. Je- Jesus being sufficient changes how God makes us completely new. It changes how we, how God makes us a new person. It changes us. It changes um, how we re, uh, not having to live under other people's expectations and other people's standards. Jesus being sufficient gives us power to live new lives and to stop sinning and to put on holiness because of who Jesus is. Jesus changes our marriages and our family and our family relationships and how we work and how we build together and how we plant together. Lord willing, plant new churches together. The sufficiency of Jesus in the gospel, because the power of the gospel, changes everything. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Alive in Christ. And I'm just so grateful to be doing this together with you guys. I'm just so grateful that we get to enjoy who Jesus is together. We don't need to worry about being marginalized. Jesus, the marginalized Savior, comes and lives right now with love to satisfy us and power to change us. It's all about Him. It's all about being alive in Him. It's all about enjoying the sufficiency of Christ in the gospel. So let's pray. Father, we're grateful that Your Word is true and that You've given us Jesus and that You've given us this book, Colossians, so that we can learn and enjoy what it means to be alive in Christ. God, help us. Help us to know you. Help us to be alive in you. Help us to love each other. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure 
proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.